Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi everybody, Trace Blackmore, your host for Scaling Up H2O. Nation, I am so excited because I am continuing our conversation with one of my mentors, Jay Farmery, CWT. Last week, we learned about standards. We learned a little bit about Jay. We learned about how Jay and I sort of created our relationship. So maybe that might help you create a relationship with a mentor that you need in your life. Of course, I feel that I am at the position that I am right now in my water treatment career because of all of the people that for no reason other than they wanted to help me and help the water treatment community that they poured into me. That with everything else that I've done has allowed me to become the water treater that I am today. So thank you so much for all the people that have helped me with that. Now last week Jay spoke specifically on standards and the fact that the water treatment industry really has no standard of care when it comes to what our customers should expect for us. So with that, we now appreciate the fact that if we had a standard, there'd be less of a moving target. Today, we're going to move into what happens when parties disagree. So party A says they've done something, party B says no, you haven't done something, and they don't come to an agreement, well, that goes into arbitration, or it might go into a court of law, into a jury trial. Most of us have not experienced that. So I want to make sure that you get a glimpse of what happens when things go bad. I really think that if you listen to this interview, the way that you do your service reports, the way that you communicate with your customers, the way you document things is going to be a little bit better because you realize where all of this documentation can go. You realize where this conversation can go. So with all of that, please welcome back my mentor, Jay Farmery, CWT. My returning lab partner is no other than Jay Farmery, CWT, mentor of mine, friend of Scaling Up. Jay, thank you so much for coming back this week. Thank you for having me back, Grace. Jay, we've talked last week about us water treatment folk. We have to do a minimum set of items in order for us to get the job done. And we talked about how people like yourself help customers make sure that people like me are doing that minimum line of standards. And we even went further on with the conversation saying that the Water Treatment Folk Collective are trying to come up with their own standards so we can all practice this craft at a minimum level. Is that pretty much, did I catch us up where we were? That's pretty where we were. All right, so we don't have that standard yet. You and other people are tirelessly working on this standard, so we will see that coming up soon. But now I wanna change the focus that you are working with a customer now. And they had some sort of failure in a piece of equipment and you now have all the documentation that the water treater provided to that customer while they were treating the water, and you're going to look at it, and you're going to have discovery on if they did something, if they didn't do something, and then you're going to present your case in court. 
let's talk about how you're an expert witness, because that's pretty much what that's called, right? That's what it's called. Well, let's, let's go, what would happen? Okay, so a piece of equipment fails. The customer's going to come to you as the water treater and say, okay, what's going on? What happened? Why did it happen? Can you, can you provide information? Do we have to get a metallurgical analysis? I mean, basically, we do metallurgical with Cyrus Rice. We do metallurgical analysis. So a lot of times we'll do some metallurgical analysis for the client or for an AWT member or for whoever to find out why that system failed or why what corroded, what caused the problem, or even if somebody got sick from Legionnaire's disease. So the thing is, so now the lawyers get involved or the insurance company gets involved. Okay, the insurance company says, okay, what's our return on investment? How much that was paid in? How much are we going to pay out? How much are the lawyers going to cost? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they are doing their due diligence to figure out how much they can pay out because they really don't want to pay the money out if, if they're not to blame or subrogation and things like that. So then what happens is either the insurance company or a lawyer may call and say, Mr. Farmer, we hear you're an expert. Provide us your CV. And CV Great. stands for? Curriculum Vitae. So it tells them all about me the projects I've been involved with, they may want a water treatment person, they may want a metallurgist, they may want a lot of different things because they're trying to, they're trying to win a case. And you gotta understand in lawsuits, you're being judged by a jury. And in liability lawsuits, it isn't beyond a shadow of a doubt like it is with criminal, it is the blind scales of justice. So you put a feather on this scale that's 50.1% and you're guilty. It doesn't take much to move it this way. And the jury also has opportunities to award the person that's hurt or injured or whatever, the plaintiff, some percentage of money because that's what it's all about. They're presenting some percentage of money. So these are all the things of what happens. So the, the insurance companies may say, you know what, we really don't want to take this to court. Let's get some professional opinion. Let's see if we can solve it by arbitration. Some insurance company, somebody says, I've been injured so much. You know what, I want the stars. And it all depends on the personal people. Check your mental and offensiveness at the door. You want to be calm, cool, and collective of everything you do. Because if you get excited with it, what happens is you throw it out the window. Now, I've got to ask you a little bit about that because getting sued terrifies me as a business owner. So, and, and that's, that's never happened and I'm knocking on wood right now. But let's say somebody does bring some sort of action. As a business owner, I get really upset about that. You know. How do I handle myself? How do I not do what you just said? Well, first off, you want to be proactive. You might want to bring an expert in to help you if somebody tells you they had a problem. Nip it in the bud early. Tell them, find out what happened. Hey, and if you did something wrong, make it right. Be proactive, as I said. You want to try to help, get help, and help early. Because if you want to let it go to a lawsuit, Anybody can get sued at any period of time. 
in this Sue happy world, guess what? Oh, I'll bring a lawsuit and everybody gets afraid. No, you can't stop a lawsuit. And the lawyers sue everybody. You have to understand that. They're just trying to find the person with the biggest pockets to meet the customer's needs or his client's needs. So sue everybody, see what sticks. Right. So they're throwing, having you throw a lot of darts against the wall. So bringing somebody technical in or an oversight or even a water treatment company bringing somebody in to look at it from the 3,000-foot level to look, hey, did we do, could we have done anything different? Could we have done... Do something proactive and help yourself. Something fails. No, we're not going to. Doing a metallurgical analysis is too expensive. Wrong. Have it metallurgically analyzed. Then we can decide, you know, what actually caused this? Because sometimes what you think it is, it isn't. There's little clues inside the metallurgy and other things that happen. You know, a lot of metallurgists look at a piece of pipe and it splits down a weld seam. Oh, it's a weld seam. No, it's the ERW piping. You let solids build up on the ERW piping, it caused this. Or you have preferential corrosion of the weld seam because of the way it was constructed. Was it a bad weld, etc.? Stress corrosion cracking. What's the temperature? What's this? There's so many other things involved. So you're looking at all these things and saying, hey, let's solve the problem. A lawsuit that I worked on, it was uh, stress corrosion cracking on stainless steel of a, of a whey bundle, whey tanks, and it was from the outside in. It wasn't from the inside out, but it cracked at the weld seam. And it was insulation that got wet and moist and drove the chlorides from the insulation to cause the stress corrosion cracking on the stainless steel. And they were taking this tank from... 200 degrees down to 42 degrees over a 36-hour window. So the tank breathes. You have to think about what's happening in that tank. So it's breathing, and it didn't, wasn't sealed properly. So that's a manufacturer's defect. Oh, they didn't think about it, but the tank's breathing. So what happens in a, in a cheese or dairy or whatever? They're very wet because they're always doing cleaning of something. So you're bringing all that moist air in, and that moist air gets on the insulation and corrodes the metal. Now, Jay, I'm willing to bet that you were brought in because somebody was originally blaming the water treater for that failure. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that. Basically, you know, sometimes you're defending a water treater, and most of the time that's what I'm doing defending a water treater, and sometimes it's picking on them. But I would say more times than not that I'm defending a water treater. And it's looking at what they're doing and what are the standards of care. I mean, we talked last week. If it's not a standard, guess what? Yes, you get away with a little bit more, but the jury may have a different opinion, or they may find another expert has a different opinion. You know, there's always a lawyer or somebody else can attack you. So you never stop that lawsuit. So you shouldn't be scared of a lawsuit. It's going to cost you money no matter what happens because, one, you're taking time away from your business. You may not be selling that day. You may be in court or in depositions for weeks doing answers, uh, digging up all the information, 10 years' worth of data from a, for a client looking at all this information and gathering all this information so you're taking time away from your business. That's costing you, and you don't get reimbursed for that. Insurance doesn't reimburse you. Then you have your deductible. Then you have everything else. 
the biggest thing is you really want to take negligence off the table. And if you even think about it, most of the suits are settled well before going to court because what happens is it's the people there when you when it, if it ever goes to court we had a very small lawsuit $500,000 it should have been settled by the insurance companies but it went to court they spent more than $500,000 for because people didn't check this at the door you referred to ego of course ego right Jay, let's talk about your process. So let's say I hire you because I need you to be my expert. And there's a piece of equipment in question. How do you get involved? What do you do? And what do you do with what you do? Well, sometimes I go out and do a site audit. If a water treater wants me to be proactive, it's being proactive. We go in and see if we can get a piece of the failure and find out what's going on. You know, why did this explode? Why did this blow up? Why did it crack? If the client, sometimes you say, hey, if we find it's my fault, I'll pay for it as a water treater. But if we find it's something else, it might be another problem, you pay for it. And the client will normally agree to that because you're trying to be proactive and help him. Why did this RO membrane fail? Why did this, why did this happen? Why did that happen? You know, that's, that's the whole thing. That's being proactive. That's trying to avoid that lawsuit. It's, it's ego. How much damage was done? You know, what did you do? What caused that failure? But if you don't know, you're guessing. And the insurance companies want to know that. You, truthfully, you really don't want it to even get to the insurance companies early. The insurance company is willing to settle at a right number. But he wants to know that He's actually correct. He doesn't want to loot. I mean, it's taking money out of their pockets. Yes, you pay insurance money, but even a car, think about your car. You get in a car accident, what's the first thing the insurance companies are doing? Well, it's your fault. You find, They want to find out definitely whose fault it was. For injuries, it's everything's no fault. But for damage to the vehicles, they want to find out whose fault. Who ran the red light? Who did this? Who did that? And that's all you're doing. You're, you're doing your due diligence and trying to help your client. And, and if you do that and you don't have to admit that you did anything, you're trying to uh, help yourself by doing these due diligence things to help the client. And you sometimes you actually maintain that client for a lot longer because you actually were proactive. So it's, it, it makes it a little bit different. Um, the biggest thing is you really don't want to go to a jury trial, and I have testified in jury trials, because they pick jurors that know nothing about what you do. Well, before we get there, let's, let's step back a, a couple of feet, if you don't mind. So uh, you're now working with a client. They brought you in. And are you going to ask to see every document that was ever produced? Uh, you said you were going to go out and you'd probably, you know, go to the actual site and collect information on your own. Uh, you're, you're one of the best metallurgists. I was going to, just going to say you're a metallurgist, but you're a fantastic metallurgist. So you would probably collect samples and take those back to your lab so you can get information as well. What are some of the things that you're going to be doing so you can really figure out what happened? Okay, so if we're doing some metallurgy, we might be doing, depending on the system, we might be doing DNA analysis. 
Uh, we have DNA analysis to measure bacterial contamination. And you can do that even on a dry sample, even though it has been. I mean, the thing is you're looking at, and remember, just like we're taking water treatment samples, we're doing a snapshot in time, the same thing is. But it's doing metallurgy or forensic metallurgy, it's like we're NCIS. We're like Abby in the NCIS series. We're looking at the different pieces of equipment, the levels of the deposit. We're looking at a lot of different things. We're looking at the metallurgy and things like that. We're doing some prediction. And we can do it on plastic. We can do it on whatever. So it's, it's looking at all this and saying, okay, what's actually occurring? Or what had occurred? Because there's little keys in almost everything. Is there chlorides in the pit? What's going on? Where did the chlorides come from? Oh, okay. So we have chlorides in the pit. We have a boiler tube that has chlorides in the pit. Where, where do chlorides come from? Very high chlorides, over 1%. Hmm. So we're doing a boiler tube that has chlorides in the pit. Where would those chlorides come from? Where could they come from? So do me a favor, water treatment guy. Check your water softener. Regenerate it and check the, check, check the conductivity on it. Oh, conductivity on that water softener. Oh, right after it regenerated? It's 40,000. Oh, we just figured out where the chlorides came from. Boom, we just solved the problem. If you're not doing, if you're not doing chlor, I mean, the thing is, remember that picture in time, check it right after that softener came off, came online. 40,000. Oh, maybe an hour later, it was down to normal tap water. But that means, oh, the rinse cycle wasn't set right. But I guarantee you, there was indications there earlier because enough testing wasn't done. At some point, you would have caught, if you were doing enough testing on the feed water, you might have caught the problem. But you didn't install the water softener. But you're the water expert. Now it comes down to, you're the water expert. Why weren't you doing chlorides? Don't you think the chlorides doing the chlorides is important? Don't you think running conductivity is important? It coincides with everything of the testing and why how important our testing is so much. And again, you are the professional. You are the expert in that because the client doesn't know. So, as I said, what if the other if the client gets gets another opinion, takes another consultant, he might have the opinion that you should have been doing that testing. So now, hey, but there's no standard. But if there is a standard, maybe we're all doing that testing, and we're vetting failures. And we're, you see how we're protecting ourselves by having the standard? It makes total sense to me. It, it actually protects us. There's the perfect example. And that's what I just told you about the chlorides. That was a, how did you know to think, think about that? Well, I found 1% chloride in the pit. Right. And, but chlorides are highly soluble. How did I find you 1% of chloride? Well, it bit up, built up in the pit. I can hear people out there, though, Jay, that are saying, so now this standard's going to come out, and we're talking about last week's episode again, but that's okay. So the standard's coming out, and now I've got to run chlorides every time I run a softener test to see if it's soft or not. That's not what the standard's going to say. No, it's not going to say that. It, it'll be a recommended guideline to run chlorides, but at least run conductivity. You would have seen higher conductivity sometime in that feed water. Most of the time, we're just running total hardness. But if you were running conductivity, you would have seen, uh-oh, was that a bad sample? Oh, why was the conductivity so high? No, it's a good sample. What's going on here? 
So now that may drive us to run another test. Getting back to what we said last week, asking yourself why. Right. How do you know? Why do I know this? What do I need to do next? That's the same thing. So the more data we have, we can predict what's going to happen. And we can stop the problems before they start. So as I said, you're going in, you're doing the metallurgicals, you're doing everything else, and you're trying to protect yourself. The client could always ask, why didn't you do that? And you can say, okay, fine, I was a little lax or a little lazy or whatever else. Uh, but you know what? You also didn't install the water softener. You didn't set the timers. And it depends off if you sold them the water softener, did you set those timers properly? What's going on? And I'm willing to bet that most people just leave them at the factory settings. You can't. You can't because you have to look at the rinsing cycles. That's very important. So basically, you might be using 12 pounds, 10 pounds, 8 pounds of salt. I mean, most of them are set for 8 pounds of salt. Well, you know what? 8 pounds of salt doesn't allow that softener to be very efficient. Because we're trying to get hard water levels down to very, very low levels, we're putting 12 pounds of salt in. So our rinse cycles might have to be different. You know, that's the whole thing. What, you know, what size adductor do you put on? What, what this? There's so much more. That's why I said, there's, the, there's where we become water doctors. We have to understand all the sciences of everything that we do. We have to understand the equipment. We have to understand the shapes of the equipment. You know. The biggest thing is when you go in to look at an aluminum boiler or whatever else, a new construction, do you look up the pieces of equipment and what they look like inside? Do you understand that they have enhanced tubes? In another case that I worked on, the guy said, how, how would I know that the heat pumps had enhanced tubes? They had enhanced tubes. All the new heat pumps have enhanced tubes. But I'm treating them, I just treat them like everything else. No, you can't do that. A hot water boiler. Most people just make assumptions that it's just like the other one they treated yesterday. You don't do that. No. When you run across a new hot water boiler, what do you do? Okay, does the hot water boiler, what's, what's the design? We have hot water boilers that basically have domestic hot water coils up top. What do you do there? How about a steam boiler with that domestic hot water coils in the steam header? There's a lot of boilers out there. What kind of a piece of equipment? So I tend to look at the piece of equipment, get the model number, go on to the websites, and look up that information. Yes, it takes you more time, but it makes you more of a professional. You're, now you're doing your due diligence. You've taken negligence off the table. You've done your due diligence to figure out what's going on with that system. You may not know how to properly treat it, but you may have to train, you, that's where you might call and say, hey, Jay, how, I got this kind of piece of equipment. How do you treat it? It has different, different metallurgies. What is the metallurgy? Stainless steel, what do you do? You know, there's certain applications you use stainless, certain applications where you use copper, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, okay, let's do this. So let's bring up aluminum boilers. <clears throat> I'm sure you had several of opportunities to use your expert witness uh, expertise. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's what I'm going with. Where an aluminum boiler was being treated by a water treatment company and you got brought in from one side of the other. So no names to protect the innocent. Tell us about one of those stories. Okay, we had an aluminum boiler, a cast aluminum boiler. It had failed and had a leak in it. So we took the section, 
sectioned it down. And the first thing we found when well, we were on site, happened to be on site, it had a bunch of rocks in it. And I mean big rocks. They didn't get there from the water treatment company. They got there during the construction. Either the boiler section was dragged along the ground or whatever else while they were doing the construction. So now we get into the, to the section and it had a little piece of metal hooked around one of the internal edges. Now, there's spokes inside there to get the water moving different ways. That piece of metal vibrated and actually sawed its way through a spoke and was jammed into the spoke and actually caused the sawing of the aluminum. The internals at a boiler looked beautiful. The treatment was great. It was not a water treatment problem. That was a piece of metal that got transferred into the facility because it was a refurbishment and they put the aluminum boilers on. The piece of metal got transferred in there from the refurbishment. You're not getting that out. That's not a water treatment problem. So doing that kind of study, that metallurgical study, and we have, I have a ton of pictures for it, and you see it and you say, hey, this is an easy solve. But when in doubt, blame the water treater first. Right. Right. <laughs> because they don't know. The customer doesn't know. Hey, my boiler failed. Why did it fail? It has to be water treatment because they're the only person people working on it because they don't understand what we do. So, I mean, those are the kind of things you look at and you say, was the metallurgical worth? Sure. He could have had an insurance claim against them for the damage. Because remember, where does this boiler was in the penthouse. Where does the water go? Water goes down. The office is right under the penthouse. They're very high-end offices. Now they get water. And normally in a 41-story office building, those the offices up there are very expensive. And all the paintings they have on the wall are very expensive. And the damage it does to those paintings becomes very expensive. So that insurance company would have been paying, the water treatment insurance company would have had a big, big check to write. I remember you telling me a story a while ago where you were involved in a case and the water treater was charging a very minimal amount for a closed loop system. Of course, water treaters sometimes think, ah, oh, closed loop, big deal, don't really have anything to worry about with that. They weren't getting a lot of money, they weren't doing a lot with that closed loop system, but it was in a high dollar condominium, a high rise and these people had some major art hanging on the wall and that closed loop leaked and it wasn't just that cheap closed loop, it was now these million dollars in all these paintings. Yep, I remember that one. And that's what happens, that's what you have to think. Where does my water go? Where's, you know, um, working with another client right now that has a high rise office building they have renters on the on top floor, but where the water treatment equipment is, there's no drain. You know you're going to have a leak there. As a water treater, did you tell the client he should have put a drain in there? And if you told them, did you write, write it, down? it down? Did you write it down? Because he doesn't remember that discussion. Not that I can recall. So that's the whole thing. Did you do your due diligence? That's what we're supposed to be doing as a water treater doing our due diligence. And truthfully, you know, the expert witness is basically just providing common sense to 
the jury and looking at things. And again, everybody has an opinion, but the thing is, it all comes down to facts. Well, let's now step into where you tried to take us earlier. Let's go into the courtroom now. Tell us about that experience. What is that like? What happens there? What role do you play there? Well, in the expert part, uh, first off, you're, whether you're doing testing or whatever else, the first thing that's going to happen in, an, in a lawsuit is the insurance, again, the insurance company is going to be involved. You're normally going to be, you're listed as an expert for the case. So now you may de be deposed. Well, first off, you might be, might be or might not be asked to write a professional opinion report. So then they present that report to the other side. Now the other side's going to say, well, we'd like to talk to this expert beforehand. So now you're deposed. Now you, for that deposition or before the deposition or before your professional opinion report, you may review other people's documentation. You may re review the water treatment documents, everything that's discoverable. So if you got sued over an account, you may, they may, everything in your office files could be discoverable. Every book that you have could be discoverable. You know, all these things can be discoverable. Wait a second, you're talking about the books that are on somebody's bookshelf? Sure. So this is a really cool book. I saw this at an AWT convention. I've never read it, but I really like the cover. That can be held against me? Yeah, why didn't you read it? They're gonna look and what you have and why, why are you doing your job? You have Collins books or somebody else's books or you have it on your, on your laptop. Your, lap, your laptop can be discoverable, information for a lawsuit. All these things, you're gonna be asked to produce them. So you've produced them, now the other side gets to see what you have. They're looking at your cards and now they've hired an expert to look at all that kind of information and see, and he's gonna have an opinion, you're guilty or not guilty. He doesn't say guilty or not guilty, but he's gonna have an opinion and he writes his opinion and the other side, you write, your side writes your opinion. Now each, each, each lawyer is going to say, okay, we can either go to arbitration with this and now we fight this. So you might go into arbitration and one person hasn't checked their ego. So now we have an ego fight. So now we go into, okay, we're gonna depose all the experts and we're gonna depose everybody else. So now you go into deposition, your expert goes into deposition. The other sides, uh, the facility manager may go into deposition, the custodian, the main, anybody that's involved, it could be deposed. So you're served court papers, subpoenas, and you're going through all this data and you're trying to catch some inconsistencies. The lawyers are trying to catch some inconsistencies with it and you do that all under oath. And a deposition is basically, you're answering questions for hours. Could be four hours, could be eight hours, could be 10 hours, could be over two days, could be three days. It all depends on how big the lawsuit is, how many other lawyers, because each side, so when a lawyer names when a client would name 10 people that he involved in a lawsuit because he's trying to figure out who has the biggest pockets to pay, okay? So what it comes down to is now they're gonna sue you. So every one of those lawyers have a chance to ask you a question and they're all gonna come at you in different ways because they're trying to protect their client. So now you've been deposed, you've gone through that. Now they figure out, okay, maybe it'll go back to deposition again or settlement again. And now maybe it goes to more depositions because more people are brought in. 
more experts, more metallurgists, etc., etc. So now you have all these depositions and you're trying to review all this information and go further. Okay, our egos haven't been checked at the door. We haven't, our insurance companies haven't decided to settle. Da da da. We're going to take it to court. So we've gone through, tried to go through arbitrations. We tried to go through this. We tried to go through that and nobody settled. So now we're going to go to court. Some, you know, they have to plan ahead of time what, what are the exhibits are going to be presented. Everybody has to see the other people's cards. In one case, I've had a lawyer ask me to sit in on jury selection. And the thing is, if you're dealing with a facility, they don't want a custodial person on that jury because he could swing or sway the jury. They want the 10 or 11 or 12 people that are the most stupidest, have no knowledge. And you say that with love. Yes, I say that with love. I say that with love. It's, it's not that they're stupid. It's they have no knowledge because they don't want to swing the jury one way or the other. The justice or the lady with the, with the blindfold, hey, put the feather on the scale. Let 12 people decide what's going on. Who is to blame on this? And they have no knowledge. They have no scientific knowledge. They may not have any knowledge. They just have their personal lives and are supposed to listen to the testimonies. So let's say you were doing a case in Atlanta mm -hmm. and I somehow got pulled up for jury duty. And this is a case that I somehow got on and I'm now being interviewed as a jury. There's no way that I'm getting on this case is what you're saying. Right. You See, that, that just that just sounds amazing to me, because this is you something have water that, treatment background. No, do you? The first thing they're going to ask you is, uh, do you know any of the plaintiffs, or have you heard of their names, or anything else? What do you know about them? So that may get you thrown off the jury. Real okay, quick. let's say it wasn't you then. Let's say it was somebody I, I had absolutely no knowledge of, but it was about water treatment. Probably wouldn't get it. You they you know anything about water treatment? Now, the water treater would want you on there. The other guy may not want you on there. So, gone. The couple cases, they had other facility guys, new facilities. Nope, gone. I mean, they get so many exemptions, I'm basically throwing people off. So, they're going to try to keep the people off to keep the scale balanced. So, to me, that's not a jury of my peers. I'd rather have 12 water treaters. Right. But that's not going to happen, as you just told right. us. Right. So, it's very odd. First off... I've never been called for jury duty, but I guarantee you I'd be thrown off the first day. Because the first thing I'd say, I'd, I'd do expert witness work. Boom. They know right away that I can sway a jury. They don't want the jury swayed. You just heard of the El Chapo jury uh, right now. They're, they're, they're under problems because they were looking at data that they shouldn't have been looking at. I mean, they, that swayed the jury. They don't want the jury swayed one way or the other. The lawyers... And the case is supposed to sway the jury. You want to pick a good lawyer and you want to pick good experts. Because these aren't technical people, you want somebody who can take a technical subject and explain it to people that may not understand. So let's talk about that. The jury's been selected. You have now been called to the stand. You've been sworn in. What happens with that? Basically, first off, one of the lawyers is going to start asking you questions. And if it's your side, he's asking you favorable questions to help you provide the information. The other guy gets to cross-examine you. 
and he's going to try to beat you up and get you to have some show some inconsistencies. And he also has your deposition. Well, you were deposed and you said this, and now you're saying this. Why is there a discrepancy? He wants to see more discrepancy, discredit your testimony. Let's unpack that because a lot of people out there have never had that experience. So the person that hired you, their attorney, they call you on the stand and you basically report your findings in a very favorable manner because you're all working for the same team. Now the opposing counsel comes up and he's trying to get you to stumble. He's trying to get you to misstate something so he can show a hole in what you've come up with and what you've previously testified to. Take us through that. It's very stressful, uh, but you only answer the question that was asked. That's the biggest thing. You're answering the question that was asked, you do not extend because now that gives some opportunities to get more information out of you, find more inconsistencies in your testimony. So you really look at that and you say, okay, fine. Did I check my ego at the door? Do I get flustered easy? I think something that probably uh, helped me in all this from doing this is that I officiated. I always knew when I walked into a game, I was 50% wrong and 50% right. You're of course talking about hockey. Yes. Well, I also officiated football and basketball at some previous time. So by doing that, it prepared me for some of this because I don't get flustered, basically. Yeah, there are times I get mad and flustered, but normally under stressful situations, if you get flustered, that's what they play on. And everybody can see it. So if you're sitting as a jury... What would you think if somebody got mad or upset, whatever else? They're going to use it against you. So you have to be able to think clear-headed. You might answer something wrong or misspoke or whatever else. So the jury is going to look at all these kind of things. And just your, your facial expressions, your, your mannerisms, all those things are brought into it. So they're listening to every word. And you, the thing is... If you're sitting on a jury and you, you're going to have one, this expert and then you're going to have the next expert, but then they may recall you again and again and again, and you're rebutting or refuting another expert's testimony. So the trial can go a couple hours, go a couple days. It goes on, and then the jury gets basically gets instructed from the judge, and it takes time, and... You're going to sit there through all of it and listen to it all and just say, okay, fine. And you got to remember that the lawyers are doing their job to win for their client. That's their job, to win for their client. As an expert, you're trying to help your client also. You're not going to lie for them. You're going to just tell the truth because that's what you said. Jay, let me ask you this. So... You're a great water treater, you're a metallurgist. I mean, you know what the issue is that caused whatever the problem was. Have you ever presented all of that and then, I mean, you know exactly what the issue was and the person, let's say the person was completely innocent because of what you found. Has the jury gone back and because they are just so layman in our industry, they didn't see it that way? Yes, I've had other cases thrown out of court that you just can't figure out why. You don't know why. And you're thinking, didn't you look at this? Come on, guys. It happens that way. Let's think about the OJ trial. He tried to glove one. 
leather gloves shrink. Come on, let's, can't you figure that one out? No, but that's, it doesn't matter. It was the two lawyers against one another and the experts. The jury tended to believe OJ's lawyer. I mean, that's what you have to think about. It does happen. You hope it doesn't happen. The lawyers aren't happy that it happens, but it does happen. So going in front of a jury, it's a coin flip. If you can settle up front, it's sometimes better. That's why I say check your ego at the door. Checking the ego at the door always seems to be the factor on making things worse. Well, that's what it is. And how excited you get. I mean, having been in front of a jury, having be deposed, as I said, it's very stressful. So it's trying. And, you know, truthfully, that doesn't mean that when the other lawyer is asking you questions, you, you don't get frustrated because you've answered the same question, the same answer I gave you 10 minutes ago or a half hour ago or this morning. They're trying to see some inconsistencies in your thing. Yes, that gets frustrating sometimes. And that's when you hope your lawyer helps you by, can we take a break? Can we have a break now? Because you get very frustrated. Well, Jay, I really appreciate you taking us inside what you do inside the courtroom. A lot of people out there have never experienced that. Hopefully they never will experience that. But I think getting a glimpse inside what you do makes it so important what we do when we're running our regular test, when we're writing our service reports, when we're talking to the customer, because you've taken it all the way to when something happens and it goes very wrong, how wrong it can actually go. And see, that's where it comes. The more data I have when I'm testifying, it allows me more latitude or more ways to protect the client from issues. And I'd rather protect my clients if I have more data. So, I mean, those are the kind of things. And you might have stopped, stopped the problem before it happens. But you know what? It's, those things still happen. Accidents do happen. I mean, you know, when we do the training, I say accidents just don't randomly occur. But accidents still do happen. You know, pe people do get in traffic accidents. And they can be very attuned to what's going on. But it still does happen. Sure. So the thing is, what you're trying to do is basically make sure that we're taking negligence off the table, whether it's a wrongful death or whatever else, what happens. And then providing proof, because there, sometimes there is no proof. You know, in a Legionella case, you look at um, the one that I was thinking is we did a lawsuit in Palm Springs. Somebody came down Legionella at a hotel, similar to the one we're, we're at today. We're in a hotel. One of the uh, people staying there came down with Legionnaire's disease, and it was from the cooling tower. They always do. That's the, always, that's the first place you look. Well, they found serogroup 1. Well, what test did they do? They did the urinary antigen test. What does that show? Only serogroup 1. Well, okay, it must be you because you have serogroup 1, and this is serogroup 1. What did you do to the platelets? No. Why not? We didn't think about it. Why didn't you do the platelets? You could compare it the platelets for DNA analysis and verify that it was that cooling tower. Did you do enough testing? No, we didn't do enough testing. Okay, now you're trying to solve where that person was. Could they have got the leech null someplace else? Well, in a, in a deposition, you could see that somebody had coached this person to testify. Oh, there was no other misting devices anywhere 
around where we went. They'd already, you could see it by reading the deposition. What do you mean there's no other? You didn't go to meals in Palm Springs? You would just walk down the street, there's misting devices in the flower, flower beds. You know, I ain't that stupid. You know, just walking down the street. You never had a meal anyplace. Where did you have your meals? Boom. But in the deposition it said, there was no other misting devices. You make the same walk and guess what? There's 50 of them. Okay, so we had a meal there. You know, that's, that's the kind of things that you're really looking at. That's where it takes an expert to understand the information. Well, Jay, I know this is going to help people out. Uh, like I said, I really think it's going to get people thinking that what I'm doing right here, right now, I don't want it to get to the level that you just described. But if it did, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to catch the issues before that happens. No, it's, it's, it's very interesting, Trace. It, it, it provides a lot of information. And as I said, if you're involved in a situation, get a good lawyer. Don't just get your friend. Get a lawyer that's a good showman because it's all about the show. It really is in court. Who's wearing the best tie? Who's entertaining the audience best? A, a really good friend of mine that I scuba dive with, he is a fantastic storyteller and he's a trial attorney. And I just can't imagine jurors not loving whatever story that he's telling, but that's what it's all about. And basically, again, having good experts. Get them on your side early, because guess what? If the other guy gets them, guess what? Now you're behind the eight ball. Jay, let me ask you specifically, because you're a metallurgist, you have seen a lot of materials, a lot of failures. And I'm sure you've seen some that are repeated more than others. So what's the most repeated thing that you've seen in your lab that you can just say, you know what, if you just did this, you wouldn't have that issue. You've got the complete scaling up nation listening to you. What advice do you have for them? Well, it's probably using the right pipe for the right systems. We, we also do fire protection piping and, and other things because they have water in them. But it's understanding, you know, we all understand corrosion. You need the anode, the cathode, the electrolyte, and oxygen. So you really have to look at, you know, whether it's pitting. There's so many different types of corrosion that occur. And what's actually happening? Erosion, corrosion. You do domestic water systems. How fast is the flow? There's no one thing that you constantly see. You're constantly looking at different things. I mean, probably the most common is ERW piping that's not heat normalized or the weld seam isn't done. But that's preferential corrosion of the weld seam because that pipe is not reheated. It's like taking a piece of tube sheet metal, rolling it, and then putting a glue joint down. It's a little bit more complicated than that. They do try to put a little heat along the rollers, and they do some cutting depending on how thick or uh, how... What's the diameter of the pipe? Two-inch pipe, it's tough to get the cutter down. But a four-inch pipe, it's easier. So making sure that weld seems smooth. But a lot of ERW piping tends to fail at the weld seam because you have... It's like having differential metals. If you look at the perlite structures, they're totally different. Perlite is the in metallurgical structure of the pipe or metal. So that's what you're really looking at. So that the weld because of the stress, the inherent stresses there, they tend to fail right there. That's a preferential corrosion of that weld seam. We oh, wait a second. A it's a failed pipe. That's got to be a water treatment problem. 
Well, or it's a manufacturing problem. Well, and that's what I was getting at. When in doubt, blame the water treater. Every time they always blame the thing. No, it's sometimes that is the water treatment problem or the selection or the engineer. Did he choose the right pipe for the right applications? You know, I definitely, if I got one inch ERW piping, I'm not putting that into my system. I want a fully annealed pipe, a reheated pipe to put back in because it's the inherent stresses. You know, as I said, you look at different types of things, a bent tube boiler. How do they make those tubes? They put heat on them. They bend them. Well, what happens when you bend a paperclip? You put inherent stresses in it to cause it to break. You know, how about the superheater tube, the economizer tube, things like that. How are they manufactured? Understanding how they're manufactured. Do they put them back in the furnace to heat normalize them? So you have to look at all those kind of things, and that's the things you do. Was it a failure? By understanding water, like I do, and understanding metallurgy, you can make some comparisons and understand what's going on. Whereas a lot of metallurgists, straight metallurgists, don't understand water and don't understand the functionality of water, so now they can't put the two, to two together. So they'll say, oh yeah, that is a bad pipe weld. Oh, that is a water treatment problem. You know, you work on something, oh, sulfite wasn't high enough or this. No, that had nothing to do with it. What's the design of the piece of equipment? How does it operate? You have to be able to look and say, oh, this operates this way. This is actually what's occurring. Can you picture it at the micro level? What's actually happening at a micro level? It's very different. So you understand how the piece of equipment works. Oh, the enhancements in the tubes. You know, you bend them. What happens to those enhancements? You know, one thing about the heat pumps, they're circled. And when they put enhanced tubes in them, they tend to bend them. So think about some of the uh, compression tubing that you see, and you start bending it and putting it in a roll. What do you do to those? You crimp those rolls, so you put stress into them. So you get a little dirt and debris in them, what happens? That's why they're set to rain, make sure no more than 17 milligrams per liter of suspended solids is in them. That's why those systems need more filtration. That's the understanding that I tend to understand and you adjust your water treatment. Now, most water treaters probably aren't going to know that. That's why it's important to have somebody on your side to help you with these kind of knowledge. So it's looking at the equipment, what the designs factors are. You know, I've, I wrote the Enhanced 2 paper for the, the white paper for the AWT, and it's still being used. You know, you look what's happening, and you understand it's understanding all this and trying to figure out, okay, what's happening at this localized level? That's where you have to look at things. That's great, Jake. Well, I'm not quite done with you yet. I've got a couple more questions. This has been fantastic, and I'm sure I can do another week with you, but I know you've got other places to be, although I am gonna have you back, so I just wanna have you expect that. You have been great at giving me advice throughout my career. So I would like for you to give advice to the Scaling Up Nation. So I'm gonna ask you a couple questions on who you're going to direct this advice to. And I wanna start out with the seasoned water treater that's out there listening. So what advice do you have for them? Don't ever stop learning. There's something new to learn every day. Look at your pieces of equipment, examine them, figure out what's going on, become better at your job. 
because even though you're seasoned, you have to become better at your job because we're still going to make mistakes. So don't ever stop learning. What about the brand new water treater? This is a career path. This is not I jump in, I'll learn something in six months and I'll grow. Nope, ain't going to happen. This is a career path. You either want want this as a career path or you don't. You have to have a love for it. This is a career path. You have to learn more than just your chemistry, your environmental science, or whatever else. This is not something that you can just jump into and jump out of. It's either a career or not a career. Because you're not going to learn in one month, six months, eight months, five years, everything that's in all the experts' heads. And you can't just rely that, hey, I'm going to make a million dollars without growing yourself. So make it a career path, work hard, and really grow and constantly learn. Attend AWT training. Attend other things. Attend as much training as you can. Make yourself more valuable to your boss. The person that's in water treatment and doesn't like their job. Why don't you like your job? If you don't like your job, is it you're not being paid enough or what it is? But now start looking at yourself. What could you do better? And if you truly don't like it, get out. Because all you're doing is hurting yourself. Go have fun doing something else. But also do some self-examination. Because maybe it's you and not the job. The complacent water treater. Again, same thing. If you're complacent and you're not doing your testing... You're just hurting yourself because you'll be brought in to a lawsuit or something else sooner or later. It will happen, and you're not going to like the results. Somebody that's in water treatment, they want to learn more. They don't know how to learn it. Well, why not? The AWT provides so much, so, so much. The biggest thing is, do you sit down with the teachers? Do you sit down and ask them questions? If you don't feel, you know, you feel ashamed to ask a stupid question, the only stupid question is the one not asked. I tell that, I say that all the time. Don't be afraid to walk up to the experts, Bruce, myself, Jim Lukinich, Colin, yourself, and ask a question. Forget the information. Maybe you don't want to ask it in front of your peers, but don't be afraid to ask. Talk to people. Go to the convention. Talk to the other experts. Other people have been in the industry. Talk to your peers. Get some opinions. Don't be afraid to volunteer. All those things you've got to do. That's the only way you're going to grow. You've got to make yourself grow. You know, one of the biggest things, and I said, you know, we met because we were on the board together and we did, we, did, we did things all together. Being on the board, you're able to, ask, you felt more comfortable asking questions. That's, that's the biggest thing. That's the benefits of volunteering getting to know people, being on a committee, join a committee. How do you want to grow? Get information. I serve on committees with, with the experts from uh, BETS and NALCO. We talk all the time. We call each other on the phone. Hey, can you help me with this? Oh, can you help me with that? We do it all the time. We share information. So by volunteering, it helps you professionally grow. And that's how you make it a career. Jay, that's awesome advice for whoever is listening. Thank you for answering that. Now, you spend a lot of time with us over the last two weeks. So what's the one thing 
that you want to get across to the Scaling Up Nation? I would rather see everybody test more. The more testing you do, the better off you're going to be. You're solving issues. And remember, become a doctor, become a professional. That's a great analogy. Well, Jay, we have come to the part of the interview where it's time for the lightning round. So are you ready for the lightning round? Yes, I am. Jay, you now have the ability to go back in time and talk to yourself on your first day as a water treater. What advice do you give yourself? That would probably be read more, learn more faster. Because when I was a young man, I didn't like to read. And now I never stop reading. And I would tell myself, I'll always do that internal examination. Look back at myself and understand myself and examine problems and things that I've done in my careers and see where I was at fault. Do that. Don't be afraid to do that internal examination of yourself because it isn't somebody else. It's you. What are some of your favorite books on water treatment? I like the TRTM. I think that's well written. Of course, that's the AWT technical training and reference. Right. Pincus is my favorite. I'm not familiar with that. That's a small, long time ago water treatment book. It's very good. I still pull it out, still get information out of it, and I read Pincus quite a bit. What does that stand for? That was the author, Pincus. And it's only about this big, and it's only about that wide, about an inch on the binder. That's yeah, that's helpful because this is radio because they could actually right. see those see those movements. It's it's very very thing, but you know Colin's books are great. You know, do I sit down and just read them cover to cover? No, but I use them as reference. I use other books as reference. Corrosion, metallurgical, other books all of reference. I have books in my library in my office, and also in our conference room. So I use all that when I go through articles. I cut them all out. We have file cabinets filled with articles. So if I'm looking up a certain situation and they have them spaced that they talk about maybe oxygen pitting or something else, and we have a wastewater file and a, another file, and if I have a problem, I pull out that file and breeze through it. Oh, this article helped me. Oh, this article helped me. So it provides information for it. And it was something that at the people at Cyrus, we have, we have, Cyrus Rice was started in 1916. So we have years of data and years of files. And it's great to go back and look at those kind of things. Jay, eventually Hollywood's going to find out about Jay Farmery, CWT, when they do, who plays Jay Farmery? John Candy or somebody like that. <laughs> you got to have fun. Boy, I'm depressed. You didn't ask me what other books I read. Oh, what other books do you read? Well, I like to believe, I believe that if we don't learn from history, you will repeat it. So I read a lot of things about the wars, World War II. I just finished a book by, uh, on Dusty Kleiss. Uh, he was the bomber in World War II that sunk two Japanese aircraft carriers. It was his biography. It was very, very good. Never call me a hero because he believes because he didn't die, he was not a hero. He said the heroes are the guys that died. 
and it was little things in that book. He talked about how the torpedo bombers, the torpedoes didn't work, and the guys who were in those torpedo bombers sacrificing themselves, attacking the Japanese ships to understand what's going on. So those guys sacrificed themselves. Our greatest generation, uh, last two three weeks ago, I was at, in New Orleans for the business owners, and we went to the World War II Museum. And it was so interesting. And then talking to a World War II veteran there, our greatest generation, and you understand. To me, it looks like we're on the repeat of history because we don't study history. We don't look at history. We want to denigrate history. Or sanitize it. Or sanitize it. You can't learn from it if you don't look at it. You know, the Japanese raped, pillaged, murdered. Hitler killed the Jews in the Holocaust. All these things happened. And if you read this stuff and read what was happening and the conditions that were occurring, then you understand why it occurred. And that's how you learn from it. And keep it from repeating. Right. You know, you just, you know, slavery was not just slavery of, of one color people. Uh, a lot of people came here as bond servants, understanding other countries' histories, things like that. People came as bond servants. They were actually slaves to the landowners here. They came to get here. That was their way to get here. So you read those things. Why did it occur? And then you read the French and Indian War. I, I read, tend to read Washington, Jefferson. You read those papers. You understand how this country was formed. I mean, one of the biggest things in all this things, you, and going to Ireland and sitting talking to people and, and, and being able to do those things, you get to understand their history and how they look at things. I mean... When we went to Ireland, I didn't know that they didn't, they could not own property until 1927. They didn't get their independence from Great Britain until 1927. We fought our war for independence in 1776. They couldn't own property in Ireland. That's why they left, their best and brightest came here. Their best and brightest, they lost generations of people. They lost their sons and daughters to this country. So you understand that. You understand why it occurred. Why there's such hate and animosity between maybe the Scots and the British and the, and the Irish and the British and things like that. You understand those things. And you understand how do we make it better. That's great, Jay. Thank you for sharing that. My last question, and I can't believe it's the last question. What am I going to do without interviewing you for next week? I'll have to figure that out. So you now have the ability to go and speak with anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? Probably George Washington. As a young man, he was in the, in the British Army. And he was a lieutenant, but they never promoted him. He's, he built a fort at Fort Necessity near Pittsburgh because the general got killed because he wanted to fight the battle in the other way. In the old old style where the soldiers stood there and shot at one another while the French and the Indians were hiding behind trees killing soldiers. He wasn't respected well. He was also tried to be assassinated. He had people 
basically Benedict Arnold betray him because he felt offended. He didn't leave his ego at the door. George Washington, just from the things that I've read, was a great, great man. And he stepped up and volunteered to be the president of the United States. He left his ego at the door. He went up and did certain things for this country. Uh, his plantation went to ruin. Jefferson, he let his plantation go to ruin. So it's, it's looking at these things. These people did things for this country, and they volunteered. They stepped up when the stepping was good. It wasn't being paid like politicians today. There wasn't the lobbying. Yeah, there was fighting back and forth. But they always checked their egos at the door. Well, Jay, thank you so much for spending time with us. We learned so much about so many topics, about what an expert witness does, why we do need standards in the water treatment community, and above all else, you know, why I chose you to be one of my mentors. Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Trace. Well, Nation, I'm sure you enjoyed both parts one and two of that interview. I know I enjoyed doing the interview. And my hope is that you're looking at everything that we talked about a little bit different and you're thinking, okay, what can I do as far as a standard? You know, what's the standard for our company? Does your company actually have a minimum standard that you know that every single customer is going to get and then depending if they can pay more, you're going to exceed that? And then what if we applied that to the water treatment community? As Jay says, we are going to be seeing that shortly come out from some of the organizations that he mentioned. And then the other thing was being an expert witness. He shared with us firsthand experience what it was like to be inside the courtroom and what it was like to convince a jury that had no water treatment experience whatsoever. And in fact, they look for people that have absolutely no experience whatsoever and convince them that somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And you can hear that Jay was a little bit frustrated because he knew 100% his client was right because of his water treatment knowledge, but sometimes the juries don't see it that way. And even though that he was able to prove that it just, it just didn't work out that way. How frustrating is that? Jay, thank you so much for sharing those stories. And Nation, I love it when I hear back from you letting me know that you listen to this show and things that you have done because you have listened to this show. I believe it was one of the earlier episodes, and I don't have it in front of me, but it was Tom Tenney of Lakewood. And he came on and he educated us what we needed to do in order to troubleshoot a controller using resistors. And by using certain resistors, we could mimic conductivity and pH and ORP. And I put up on my show notes page how to order the different sets of resistors so you could build your own kits like that. Well, the fine folks at Advantage actually built a device that does this. John Shaw came up to me a couple of weeks ago 
And he said, hey, I want to show this to you. And it's an actual unit. They call it the HT-SIM, I think is the product code for it, but it's a simulation board. And it's a real nice, sleek design. And you can plug it into either the pH or the ORP probe, and you can mimic what the readings should say. So that way you can very easily see if it's a controller issue, if it's a board issue, or if it's a probe issue. And I asked John, I said, hey, what do you think about putting a little rheostat on there where you could simulate conductivity? And his eyes got really big, and he said that's gonna be version two. So John Shaw, thank you so much for bringing that device to my attention. I think you're making water treaters' lives easier by having that available, and it looks like there's actually a Gen 2 coming out where it will also be able to duplicate conductivity. And by the way, even though it's an Advantage product, it will work for any controller. So thanks again for that. Nation, if you have something that you want me to talk about on the show or somebody that you want me to interview on the show, by all means, don't keep that to yourself. Let me know what that is, and you can do that in two different ways. One, you can go to my show notes page, scalinguph2o.com, and then go over to my show ideas page and let me know what that idea is. The second thing you can do on that same page, on the home page, you will see a leave a voicemail box and you can record your own voice asking me that question. And when I play your voice on the air, I will send you the most awesome scaling up t-shirt and you will wear that with pride so all your friends can see it. Folks, please don't keep that information to yourself. Let me know who you want me to talk to, what questions you might have, and I will answer them right here on Scaling Up H2O. Folks, I love bringing this show to you. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week on Scaling Up H2O.